Book Three, Chapter Fifteen of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Book Three, Chapter Fifteen, Part One. The Wedding Day. The time was nine o'clock in the morning. The place was a private room in one of the old-fashioned inns, which still remain on the borough side of the Thames. The date was Monday, the 11th of August, and the person was Mr. Bashwood, who had travelled to London on a summons from his son, and had taken up his abode at the inn on the previous day. He had never yet looked so pitiably old and helpless as he looked now. The fever and chill of alternating hope and despair had dried and withered and wasted him. The angles of his figure had sharpened. The outline of his face had shrunk. His dress pointed the melancholy change in him with a merciless and shocking emphasis. Never, even in his youth, had he worn such clothes as he wore now. With the desperate resolution to leave no chance, untried, of producing an impression on Miss Gwilt, he had cast aside his dreary black garments. He had even mustered the courage to wear his blue satin cravat. His coat was a riding-coat of light gray. He had ordered it, with a vindictive subtlety of purpose, to be made on the pattern of a coat that he had seen Allen wear. His waistcoat was white. His trousers were of the gayest summer pattern in the largest check. His wig was oiled and scented, and brushed round on either side to hide the wrinkles on his temples. He was an object to laugh at, he was an object to weep over. His enemies, if a creature so wretched could have had enemies, would have forgiven him on seeing him in his new dress. His friends, had any of his friends been left, would have been less distressed if they had looked at him in his coffin than if they had looked at him as he was now. Incessantly restless, he paced the room from end to end. Now he looked at his watch, now he looked out of the window. Now he looked at the well-furnished breakfast-table, always with the same wistful, uneasy inquiry in his eyes. The waiter coming in with the urn of boiling water was addressed for the fiftieth time, in the one form of words which the miserable creature seemed to be capable of uttering that morning. "'My son is coming to breakfast. My son is very particular. I want everything of the best, hot things and cold things, and tea and coffee, and all the rest of it, waiter.' all the rest of it. For the fiftieth time he now reiterated those anxious words. For the fiftieth time the impenetrable waiter had just returned his one pacifying answer. All right, sir, you may leave it to me. When the sound of leisurely footsteps was heard on the stairs, the door opened, and the long-expected son sauntered indolently into the room, with the neat little black leather bag in his hand. "'Well done, old gentleman,' said Bashwood the younger, surveying his father's dress with a smile of sardonic encouragement. "'You are ready to be married to Miss Gwilt at a moment's notice.' The father took the son's hand and tried to echo the son's laugh. "'You have such good spirits, Jemmy,' he said, using the name in its familiar form, as he had been accustomed to use it in happier days. "'You always had good spirits, my dear, from a child.' "'Come and sit down. I've ordered you a nice breakfast. 
"'Everything of the best, everything of the best. "'What a relief it is to see you. "'Oh, dear, dear, what a relief it is to see you.' "'He stopped and sat down at the table, "'his face flushed, with the effort to control the impatience "'that was devouring him. "'Tell me about her,' he burst out, "'giving up the effort with a sudden self-abandonment. "'I shall die, Jemmy, if I wait for it any longer. "'Tell me, tell me, tell me.' "'One thing at a time,' said Bashwood the younger, perfectly unmoved by his father's impatience. "'We'll try the breakfast first, and come to the lady afterward. Gently does it, old gentleman, gently does it.' He put his leather bag on a chair, and sat down opposite to his father, composed and smiling, and humming a little tune. No ordinary observation, applying the ordinary rules of analysis— would have detected the character of Bashwood the Younger in his face. His youthful look, aided by his light hair and his plump, beardless cheeks, his easy manner and his every ready smile, his eyes, which met unshrinkingly, the eyes of every one whom he addressed, all combined to make the impression of him a favorable impression in the general mind. No eye for reading character, but such an eye as belongs to one person, perhaps, in ten thousand, could have penetrated the smoothly deceptive surface of this man, and have seen him for what he really was, the vile creature whom the viler need of society has fashioned for its use. There he sat, the confidential spy of modern times, whose business is steadily enlarging, whose private inquiry offices are steadily on the increase. There he sat, the necessary detective attendant, on the progress of our national civilization. A man who was, in this instance at least, the legitimate and intelligible product of the vocation that employed him. A man professionally ready, on the mere suspicion, if the mere suspicion paid him, to get under our beds and look through gimlet holes in our doors, a man who would have been useless to his employers, if he could have felt a touch of human sympathy in his father's presence, and who would have deservedly forfeited his situation, if, under any circumstances whatever, he had been personally accessible to a sense of pity, or a sense of shame. "'Gently does it, old gentleman,' he repeated, lifting the covers from the dishes, and looking under them, one after the other, all round the table. "'Gently does it.' "'Don't be angry with me, Jemmy.' pleaded his father. "'Try, if you can, to think how anxious I must be. I got your letter so long ago as yesterday morning. I've had to travel all the way from Thorpe Ambrose. I've had to get through the dreadful long evening and the dreadful long night. With your letter telling me that you had found out who she is, and telling me nothing more. Suspense is very hard to bear, Jemmy, when you come to my age.' "'What was it preventing you, my dear, from coming to me when I got here yesterday evening?' "'A little dinner at Richmond,' said Bashwood the younger. "'Give me some tea.' Mr. Bashwood tried to comply with the request, but the hand with which he lifted the teapot trembled so unmanageably that the tea missed the cup and streamed out on the cloth. "'I'm very sorry. I can't help trembling when I'm anxious,' said the old man, as his son took the teapot out of his hand. "'I'm afraid you bear me malice, Jemmy, for what happened when I was last in town. "'I own I was obstinate and unreasonable about going back to Thorpe Ambrose. "'I'm more sensible now. 
"'You were quite right in taking it all on yourself. "'As soon as I showed you the veiled lady "'when we saw her come out of the hotel. "'And you were quite right to send me back the same day "'to my business in the steward's office at the great house.' "'He watched the effect of these concessions on his son "'and ventured doubtfully on another entreaty. "'If you won't tell me anything else just yet,' he said faintly, "'will you tell me how you found her out? "'Do, Jemmy, do.' "'Bashwood the younger looked up from his plate. "'I'll tell you that,' he said. "'The reckoning up of Miss Gwilt has cost more money "'and taken more time than I expected, "'and the sooner we come to a settlement about it, "'the sooner we shall get to what you want to know.' "'Without a word of expostulation,' The father laid his dingy old pocket-book and his purse on the table before the son. Bashwood the younger looked into the purse, observed with a contemptuous elevation of the eyebrows that it held no more than a sovereign and some silver, and returned it intact. The pocket-book, on being opened next, proved to contain four or five pound notes. Bashwood the younger transferred three of the notes to his own keeping, and handed the pocket-book back to his father, with a bow expressive of mock gratitude and sarcastic respect. "'A thousand thanks,' he said. "'Some of it is for the people at our office, and the balance is for myself. One of the few stupid things, my dear sir, that I have done in the course of my life, was to write you word, when you first consulted me, that you might have my services gratis.' As you see, I hastened to repair the error. An hour or two at odd times I was ready enough to give you. But this business has taken days, and has got in the way of other jobs. I told you I couldn't be out of pocket by you. I put it in my letter, as plain as words could say it. Yes, yes, Jemmy. I don't complain, my dear, I don't complain. Never mind the money. Tell me how you found her out." Besides, pursued Bashwood the younger, proceeding impenetrably with his justification of himself, I have given you the benefit of my experience. I've done it cheap. It would have cost double the money if another man had taken this in hand. Another man would have kept a watch on Mr. Armadale as well as Miss Gwilt. I have saved you that expense. You are certain that Mr. Armadale is bent on marrying her? Very good. In that case, while we have our eye on her— we have, for all useful purposes, got our eye on him. Know where the lady is, and you know that the gentleman can't be far off. Quite true, Jemmy. But how was it Miss Gwilt came to give you so much trouble? She's a devilish clever woman, said Bashwood the younger. That's how it was. She gave us a slip at a milliner's shop. We made it all right with the milliner, and speculated on the chance of her coming back to try on a gown she had ordered. The cleverest women lose the use of their wits in nine cases out of ten, where there's a new dress in the case, and even Miss Gwilt was rash enough to go back. That was all we wanted. One of the women from our office helped to try on her new gown, and put her in the right position to be seen by one of our men behind the door. He instantly suspected who she was, on the strength of what he had been told of her, for she's a famous woman in her way. Of course, we didn't trust to that. We traced her to her new address, and we got a man from Scotland Yard, who was certain to know her, if our own man's idea was the right one. The man from Scotland Yard turned milliner's lad for the occasion, and took her gown home. 
He saw her in the passage and identified her in an instant. You're in luck, I can tell you. Miss Gwilt's a public character. If we had had a less notorious woman to deal with, she might have cost us weeks of inquiry, and you might have had to pay hundreds of pounds. A day did it, in Miss Gwilt's case, and another day put the whole story of her life, in black and white, into my hand. There it is, at the present moment, old gentleman, in my black bag. Bashwood the father made straight for the bag with eager eyes and outstretched hand. Bashwood the son took a little key out of his waistcoat pocket, winked, shook his head, and put the key back again. "'I haven't done breakfast yet,' he said. "'Gently does it, my dear sir. Gently does it.' "'I can't wait,' cried the old man, struggling vainly to preserve his self-control. "'It's past nine. It's a fortnight to-day since she went to London with Mr. Armadale. She may be married to him in a fortnight. She may be married to him this morning. I can't wait. I can't wait.' "'There's no knowing what you can do till you try,' rejoined Bashwood the younger. "'Try, and you'll find you can wait. "'What has become of your curiosity?' he went on, "'feeding the fire ingenuously with a stick at a time. "'Why don't you ask me what I mean by calling Miss Gwilt a public character? "'Why don't you wonder how I came to lay my hand on the story of her life in black and white? "'If you'll sit down again, I'll tell you. "'If you won't—' I shall confine myself to my breakfast. Mr. Bashwood sighed heavily and went back to his chair. I wish you were not so fond of your joke, Jemmy, he said. I wish, my dear, you were not quite so fond of your joke. Joke? repeated his son. It would be serious enough in some people's eyes, I can tell you. Miss Gwilt has been tried for her life, and the papers in that black bag are the lawyer's instructions for the defense. Do you call that a joke? The father started to his feet, and looked straight across the table at the son, with a smile of exaltation that was terrible to see. She's been tried for her life, he burst out, with a deep gasp of satisfaction. She's been tried for her life! He broke into a low, prolonged laugh, and snapped his fingers exultingly. Ah, something to frighten Mr. Armadale in that. Scoundrel as he was, the son was daunted by the explosion of pent-up passion which burst on him in those words. Don't excite yourself, he said, with a sullen suppression of the mocking manner in which he had spoken thus far. Mr. Bashwood sat down again and passed his handkerchief over his forehead. "'No,' he said, nodding and smiling at his son. "'No, no, no excitement, as you say. I can wait now, Jemmy. I can wait now.' He waited, with immovable patience. At intervals he nodded and smiled, and whispered to himself, "'Something to frighten Mr. Armadale in that.' But he made no further attempt, by word, look, or action, to hurry his son. Bashwood the Younger finished his breakfast slowly, out of pure bravado, lit a cigar with the utmost deliberation, looked at his father, and, seeing him still as immovably patient as ever, opened the black bag at last, and spread the papers on the table. "'How will you have it?' he asked, long or short." I've got her whole life here. The counsel who defended her at the trial was instructed to hammer hard at the sympathies of the jury. He went head over ears 
into the miseries of her past career, and shocked everybody in the court in the most workmanlike manner. Shall I take the same line? Do you want to know all about her from the time when she was in short frocks and frilled trousers, or do you prefer getting on at once to her first appearance as a prisoner in the dock? I want to know all about her, said his father eagerly. The worst and the best. The worst particularly. Don't spare my feelings, Jemmy. Whatever you do, don't spare my feelings. Can't I look at the papers myself? No, you can't. They would be all Greek and Hebrew to you. Thank your stars that you have got a sharp son, who can take the pith out of these papers, and give it a smack of the right flavor in serving it up. There are not ten men in England who could tell you this woman's story as I can tell it. It's a gift, old gentleman, of the sort that is given to very few people, and it lodges here. He tapped his forehead smartly, and turned to the first page of the manuscript before him, with an unconcealed triumph at the prospect of exhibiting his own cleverness, which was the first expression of a genuine feeling of any sort that had escaped him yet. "'Miss Gwilt's story begins,' said Bashwood the Younger, "'in the marketplace at Thorpe Ambrose. One day, something like a quarter of a century ago, a traveling quack doctor, who dealt in perfumery as well as medicines, came to the town with his cart, and exhibited as a living example of the excellence of his washes and hair-oils and so on, a pretty little girl, with a beautiful complexion and wonderful hair. His name was Oldershaw. He had a wife, who helped him in the perfumery part of his business, and who carried it on by herself after his death. She has risen in the world of late years, and she is identical with that sly old lady who employed me professionally a short time since. As for the pretty little girl, you know who she was as well as I do. While the clack was haranguing the mob and showing them the child's hair, a young lady, driving through the marketplace, stopped her carriage to hear what it was all about, saw the little girl, and took a violent fancy to her on the spot. The young lady was the daughter of Mr. Blanchard, of Thorpe Ambrose. She went home, and interested her father in the fate of the innocent little victim of the quack doctor. The same evening the older Shaws were sent for to the great house, and were questioned. They declared themselves to be her uncle and aunt, a lie, of course, and they were quite willing to let her attend the village school, while they stayed at Thorpe Ambrose, when the proposal was made to them. The new arrangement was carried out the next day, and the day after that the older Shaws had disappeared, and had left the little girl on the squire's hands. She evidently hadn't answered, as they expected, in the capacity of an advertisement, and that was the way they took of providing for her for life. "'There's the first act of the play for you. Clear enough so far, isn't it?' "'Clear enough, Jemmy, to clever people, but I'm old and slow. I don't understand one thing. Whose child was she?' "'A very sensible question. Sorry to inform you that nobody can answer it.' Miss Gwilt herself included. These instructions that I'm referring to are founded, of course, on her own statements, sifted by her attorney. All she could remember, on being questioned, was that she was beaten and half-starved, somewhere in the country, by a woman who took in, in children at nurse. The woman had a card with her, stating that her name was Lydia Gwilt, 
and got a yearly allowance for taking care of her, paid through a lawyer, till she was eight years old. At that time, the allowance stopped. The lawyer had no explanation to offer. Nobody came to look after her. Nobody wrote. The older Shaws saw her, and thought she might answer to exhibit. And the woman parted with her for a trifle to the older Shaws, and the older Shaws parted with her for good and all to the Blanchards. That's the story of her birth, parentage, and education. She may be the daughter of a duke, or the daughter of a costermonger. The circumstances may be highly romantic or utterly commonplace. Fancy anything you like. There's nothing to stop you. When you've had your fancy out, say the word, and I'll turn over the leaves and go on. Please to go on, Jimmy. Please to go on. The next glimpse of Miss Gwilt, resumed Bashwood the Younger, turning over the papers, is a glimpse at a family mystery. The deserted child was in luck's way at last. She had taken the fancy of an amiable young lady with a rich father, and she was petted and made much of at the great house, in the character of Miss Blanchard's last new plaything. Not long afterward, Mr. Blanchard and his daughter went abroad, and took the girl with them in the capacity of Miss Blanchard's little maid. When they came back, the daughter had married, and become a widow, in the interval. And the pretty little maid, instead of returning with them to Thorpe Ambrose, turns up suddenly, all alone, as a pupil at a school in France. There she was, at a first-rate establishment, with her maintenance and education secured until she married and settled in life, on this understanding, that she never returned to England. Those were all the particulars she could be prevailed on to give the lawyer, who drew up these instructions. She declined to say what had happened abroad. She declined even, after all the years that had passed, to mention her mistress's married name. It's quite clear, of course, that she was in possession of some family secret, and that the Planchards paid for her schooling on the continent to keep her out of the way. And it's equally plain that she would never have kept her secret as she did if she had not seen her way to trading on it for her own advantage at some future time. A clever woman, as I've told you already, a devilish clever woman, who hasn't been knocked about in the world and seen the ups and downs of life abroad and at home for nothing. Yes, yes, Jemmy, quite true. How long did she stop, please, at the school in France? Bashwood the Younger referred to the papers. She stopped at the French school, he replied, till she was seventeen. At that time something happened at the school which I find mildly described in these papers as something unpleasant. The plain fact was that the music master attached to the establishment fell in love with Miss Gwilt. He was a respectable middle-aged man, with a wife and family, and, finding the circumstances entirely hopeless, he took a pistol, and— rashly assuming that he had brains in his head, tried to blow them out. The doctor saved his life, but not his reason. He ended, where he had better have begun, in an asylum. Miss Gwilt's beauty having been at the bottom of the scandal, it was, of course, impossible, though she was proved to have been otherwise quite blameless in the matter, for her to remain at the school after what had happened. Her friends, the Blanchards, were communicated with, and her friends transferred her to another school, at Brussels this time. What are you sighing about? What's wrong now? I can't help feeling a little for the poor music-master, Jemmy. 
Go on. According to her own account of it, Dad, Miss Gwilt seems to have felt for him, too. She took a serious turn and was converted, as they call it, by the lady who had charge of her in the interval before she went to Brussels. The priest at the Belgium school appears to have been a man of some discretion, and to have seen that the girl's sensibilities were getting into a dangerously excited state. Before he could quiet her down, he fell ill, and was succeeded by another priest, who was a fanatic. You will understand that sort of interest he took in the girl, and the way in which he worked on her feelings, when I tell you that she announced it as her decision, after having been nearly two years at the school, to end her days in a convent. You may well stare. Miss Gwilt, in the character of a nun, is the sort of female phenomenon you don't often set eyes on. Did she go into the convent? asked Mr. Bashwood. Did they let her go in, so friendless and so young, with nobody to advise her for the best? End of chapter 15, part 1